Welcome to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening in. The Neighborhood Church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We hope that through these podcasts you are encouraged, that you're inspired, and that you're provided with practical wisdom on how to find and follow Jesus. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast. Thank you, Pastor Ethan, and uh, it would be awesome if many of us can come alongside and celebrate our grads together. Amen? Uh, Good evening. My name is Pastor Jordan, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into our series today, which we've decided to call Reno Time. And tonight, we're going to be looking at a topic that I think is really a heart issue. It's deep. Um, It's not always one of these topics that fits into clean boxes, but it can be messy. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about something that I think we can carry with us, and it could actually cause us much hurt if it's not properly dealt with. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the topic of of forgiveness and its opposite, unforgiveness. But before we get into that, let me lay a foundation, and let's talk about our hearts for a few moments. Proverbs chapter 4 And verse 23 says this, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Say everything. Everything you do flows from it. That's a huge scripture for us. And so we have to, when we hear something like this, when we read something like this, I'm going to pose a question to us this evening. Just answer it in your hearts. Don't, Don't answer it out loud. But do we on a regular basis deal with matters of the heart? Is this something that we're naturally inclined to do? Because I'm going to suggest today that as humans, we actually probably rarely deal with matters of the heart. I think we often deal with behaviors. I think we deal with things that are often seen outwardly. We clean up. We put on our best face sometimes. Um, we get good, and we want to appear good despite what's actually happening inwardly. And, and sometimes that we just have to do that. You know, you, you just have to put on a smile sometimes and go with life. But I think um, other times we, we want to do that because we don't want others to see our vulnerabilities. We don't want others to see what is really happening. And by putting on a good face and by ignoring the matters of the heart, I have to ask the question, do we sometimes rob ourselves in the process by not monitoring the conditions of our hearts? Here's what I mean. Perhaps the major reason we rarely stop to monitor our hearts is that it was never actually encouraged. Think about when you were a kid. Think about when you went to school or perhaps when your parents um, talked to you. I think in a lot of ways we were taught to behave, weren't we? And if we behaved properly, then good things happened regardless of what was going on in our hearts at the time. Regardless if whether or not we actually wanted to behave or if we were actually angry and upset on the inside. If we behaved, good things happened. If we misbehaved... Not so good things happened. And I think this got my attention early, at an early age. And so I began to modify my behavior to avoid pain, if I could say it like that. And in some ways, I've been probably doing it a little bit ever since. And it wouldn't surprise me if you were too. 
You see, we live in a society, I think, that really puts a value on appearances. For example, a lot of us know that to get ahead sometimes, we just got to put on a good smile. We just got to try to present an image and look a certain way outwardly in the culture that we live in. And yet in the meantime, we could hold all sorts of feelings and um, emotions on the inside that aren't necessarily helpful for us in how we live. And in the end, all this pretending, I think, can become problematic because pretending allows us to ignore our heart's true condition. And so have we become better at monitoring our behaviors or are we people who take time and, and, and be quiet sometimes to monitor what's happening in our hearts? Because according to Jesus, it's what happens on the inside that is really important because eventually it's going to flow outside, right? In your actions and your thoughts and in your attitudes. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 20, 21, Jesus went on, he said this, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. You see, up until this point, people thought that if they were obeying commandments outwardly, then they were good with God, all was well. But when Jesus came, he taught a different way, and he taught us that what happens inwardly is of utmost importance to what happens outwardly. And so we can only play this game, I think, for so long. The unresolved issues in your heart will eventually work their way to the surface. And you'll see them in your actions. You'll see them in your character, in your deeds, in your behaviors, etc. And so I ask the question as we start this talk tonight, how is your heart? Let me illustrate this from a movie. Anyone ever seen this movie before? In the 90s, Jim Carrey was actually a very popular actor. Some of you were like, really? Yeah, he was, okay? Uh, trust me, take my word for it. And he did this movie called Liar, Liar, which I'm not even sure as a pastor I can recommend. It's been so long since I've watched this, okay? So we're just using this for illustration's sake tonight because I think it, it helps us to think about something deeper. But in this movie, Jim Carrey played this character named Fletcher, who was a pathological liar. He lied about everything. And his son gets this wish, and he starts to wish that just for one day can his dad just tell the truth for 24 hours. And so magically, for 24 hours, it becomes impossible for Fletcher, Jim Carrey, to lie about anything. And what happens when this occurs is his heart is suddenly exposed, as in completely exposed, okay? His mouth becomes like this unfiltered mirror of, of what's been stirring around in his heart all day. And the movie gets nasty, and it gets rude, and it's awkward as ever, and he just can't help himself. He has to tell the truth. So if he's thinking something bad, he has to say it out loud. And there's, a, there's a comedy effect to this, but there's also a real awkward effect to this as well. But suddenly, his biggest asset, which was his mouth and his ability to lie, actually became his biggest liability. And he can no longer cover up anything, but he's exposed. And so let me ask us this today. If it suddenly became impossible for us to cover up all the junk that we normally hide from the rest of humanity, kind of like how it happened in this movie, do you think we would all get real motivated to deal with the source of what ails us? If the filters came off, we would no doubt be a little bit more motivated and anxious to clean up our heart's condition, wouldn't we? 
And so today we talk about the topic of forgiveness. And sometimes with a topic like, like this, we can have, have a tendency to, to, to approach it like, well, I know this already. I've heard this all my life. This must be for new Christians. But you know what? That is so not true. I couldn't disagree with that more. Because this is a foundational teaching of Jesus for all Christians. And it's more practical to us today than we think. And so what is Jesus' teaching on forgiveness mean to you? I think it's safe to say that the topic of forgiveness, Jesus' teaching, is never just abstract. It's not just an idea. It's not just a theology. But it's real. And it's an action. And it's something that's a life experience. And it's often messy. And so first of all, we can't talk about forgiveness without first mentioning the forgiveness that God extends to us. That's our starting point. And our view of God is very important in how we're going to be able to accept his love and, and how we're going to be able to accept forgiveness and how we're going to be able to give it out to other people. You see, years ago, as I was browsing the bookshelves in a store, I came across um, a book that was called The Naked Gospel. And for some reason, it stood out to me, perhaps because it had two of my favorite words in the title. You know, there's just something about that word, the, that just, you know, I just I love, right? And in this book, Andrew Farley is the author, and he writes this. He says, the belief systems that we have about ourselves and about God determine many of our everyday thoughts, which then dictate our emotions. And I think he touches on something here that I could relate to. Let me share with you just a little bit of my story quickly. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I didn't come to put my faith in Jesus until I was about 18, 19, just before my 19th birthday. And for me growing up, the Catholic Church was great in that it gave me some understanding that God was out there, but it always felt like God was upset with me. I always felt like I just, you know, God was, just, I had to just appease him. You guys get what I'm saying? I had to do more good things than bad things for him to be okay with me. That was my mindset. And I better not tick him off. I better not, you know, go over the line. Otherwise, God's going to be really upset with me. I wonder if anyone else here can relate and, and maybe had a similar experience as me growing up. I knew that God wanted me to obey and follow him, but I had no proper understanding of love and grace. And I think once I realize that God's love for me is not based on what I do, but on who he is, everything started to change. You see, I carried this mindset into my second year of Bible college. I, I, I remember talking to my friends about just not, not being able to fully understand grace, and, and a lot of them were having the opposite issue. A lot of them were like, well, we kind of abuse grace, right? I, I, we just sometimes just do things that we know we shouldn't, and we say grace, right? But I, I, I was kind of in the opposite camp, and I, I just had a tough time recognizing that God can love me despite what I do. And I eventually ended up reading a, a key book in my life by an author named Philip Yancey. It was called What's So Amazing About Grace? And as I read that book, and as I began to study the scriptures he recommended, it's like God revealed himself and revealed his love to me, and everything changed. And everything in my life, all my motivations start to change. You see, if you live your life thinking that God only loves you based on what you do, then you're facing a losing battle, okay? You are facing a losing battle, and, and, and Christianity is going to be so difficult to live out thinking that way. Andrew Farley, again, 
in the book, The Naked Gospel, says this. He says, so God's not up in heaven swirling around and around in some barbershop chair with his face towards you when you're good and his back to you when you've blown it. His face is always towards you. I want you to hear that. His face is always towards us. And there's comfort in knowing this, that God is always reaching out to us. And we can take joy in that tonight. We can, we can find pleasure in that tonight. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read this. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. And so we can trust that God is good, that he has made a way for us to receive forgiveness. And that's amazing. But what implications does this free and amazing grace have upon our lives going forward? Especially when it comes to the topic of forgiveness in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. We read this, we read this in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, these words, I believe, at the end of the day, were written to give us hope. They were written by a man who knew what it was to be hurt and to be mistreated. In fact, he's writing from a prison in Rome here while he's penning these words, where he was living in that moment for unjust reasons. He didn't even deserve to be there. And it's almost as if I hear him saying, you know, anger is realistic. It's going to happen sometimes. Yet do not sin. Anger is going to happen, but don't allow it to lead you into sin. He's essentially giving a strict warning. Don't allow today's anger to carry into tomorrow. And don't allow yesterday's anger to carry into today. You see, anger can almost work like an open account. When we're angry, we often feel that we're owed something. And often what happens with anger is we're looking for payback. And we can carry it from one season to another, and unfortunately, it just causes it to multiply. And here's the thing about anger. The further you get from the original source of your anger, the more it can transfer into your relationships and to those around you. And it ends up not just hurting you, but it ends up hurting those around you. And oftentimes, I find it's the ones that we love the most that anger can really affect. You see, anger comes from many things, but one of the main areas where we see anger stem from, where its root is often found directly, is in unforgiveness. And you see, anger isn't purely bad in and of itself, but if it's carried around and not dealt with in a healthy way, then it very quickly becomes bad. You see, we get angry at injustice. How many of you ever got angry at injustice before? Anyone? And I think that's fine. You know, some say anger can motivate us to do good things. And I, I, I kind of get what you're saying when you say that. But I would suggest that as Christians, we're not necessarily to be motivated by anger, but rather by love. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And we're not just talking about any forgiveness here, but we are to extend an attitude of forgiveness that mirrors the kind of forgiveness that God has extended towards us in Christ. That's what this verse in Ephesians is trying to say. You see, the key phrase in that verse is the two words, just as. In Christ, God forgave you. And so Paul is inviting us to consider how Christ has dealt with us. How has he treated our many sins and failures? And he urges us to treat one another in light of that. And it's not just him who has this idea. This isn't just something that the Apostle Paul came up with on on his own. But Jesus actually tells a story about this. And it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. How many of you are, are familiar with this? Anyone read this before? Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Let's read through this story. Because I think this story actually really illustrates what it is the Apostle Paul wants to tell us. And this is going to be our main text tonight. And then Peter came to Jesus. And ask, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations say 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins and he grabbed him and began to choke him pay back what you owe me he demanded and his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me and I will pay it back but he refused instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called that servant in and said, You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's heavy, right? That's deep. It's a strong way for Jesus to illustrate and answer the question, how many times shall I forgive? You see, Peter asks that question. That's how this all starts. He says, how many times shall I forgive? You see, Peter wants to do the right thing. He's okay with a little bit of forgiveness, but we all have our limits, right? And I think we understand that question. Well, how many times? How many times do I have to go down this road? How many times do I have to forgive someone? And by asking how often shall I forgive 
Peter actually revealed his own misunderstanding about the nature of forgiveness. Like us, Peter assumed that forgiveness is only for the benefit of the offender. And Jesus answers, I tell you, not 70 times, but 77 times. And Jesus wasn't expecting him to carry around a little card, right, with 77 boxes on it. And every time he had to forgive someone, he'd check it off, right? That's missing the point. Jesus was basically telling him, you're to always forgive. And before Peter can even offer another word, Jesus offers this intriguing story to present a truth about the nature of forgiveness. You see, Jesus described forgiveness in a way that everyone, I think, can sort of understand. He takes the mystery out of it, and forgiveness is shown as, the, as, as a decision to cancel a debt. That's how Jesus frames forgiveness, as a decision to cancel a debt. You see, think about it. Whenever there's a hurt, whenever there's theft, whenever somebody owes someone something, um, we say things often like, well, I'm going to get even with them. And it produces that kind of thinking that we want to get even. We want someone to pay us back. We feel owed. And the master was going to sell this servant his family and his stuff because he couldn't pay back the debt he owed. And the master had every right to do this under the ancient law. And so the servant does the only thing he had left to do, and he gets on his knees and he pleads for mercy from the master. And then he does something rather absurd. He promises to pay back the debt, which I'm not going to get into numbers too much tonight because I don't want us just to focus on that. But as I was reading through commentaries this past week, this was a large debt. This was a debt that nobody could have ever paid back. This could have been something like 60 million days of work is what would have been required to pay this debt back. It was impossible for him to pay this debt back. A debt he could never pay, more money than he would ever make in his lifetime. His debt was beyond his ability to repay. And fortunately for him, his master was a merciful man. And he takes pity and he cancels this debt. And he, for, and he basically forgoes his right to be paid back from this servant. And that is the essence of forgiveness. A decision to cancel a debt. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, he says it like this. He says, the servant gets immeasurably more than he asked for. He asked for patience and the chance to repay his debt. He received amnesty and complete remission of debt. He received a forgiveness that he had not dared to request. The anthropological, big word, realities of the gospel, which are deep debt and human inability to pay it, are met now by the theological realities of the gospel, a deep forgiveness of all indebtedness by a gracious king. And so this master forgives this huge unpayable debt of this servant. And now as the story continues, we see that this servant who had just been forgiven is in the same position that his master was in. He's now in a position of power. He comes across a servant who owes him something. And you'd expect that this man who just had this massive and unpayable debt canceled, you'd expect him to do the same. But what does he do in the story? You see, the words of his fellow servant are almost an echo of the creditor's own plea earlier. 
this servant of his gets down on his knees and asks for patience and, and, and promises to pay it all back. And yet, rather than forgiving this man and this servant, as he had just been forgiven of something that he could never repay, he starts choking the guy. And he has the guy thrown into prison until he could pay back all the money. And it's quite a disturbing scene. Quite a disturbing twist in this story to the audience, I think, when they originally heard it. Because this man was just shown such incredible patience and grace and forgiveness, and yet just as quickly as he received it, he seems to have forgotten it. And in Matthew chapter 18, in verses 31 to 33, we see that when the other servants saw what he had done, they were outraged. They couldn't believe he would treat the servant like this, so they go back to the master. And then the master calls the servant to come back, calls him a wicked servant. Says, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. All of it. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And he turns the man over to the jailers. And Jesus' definition of forgiveness seems to have something to do with canceled debt. You see, the, the Greek verb aphemia, aphemi, means to dismiss to let go, to cancel, to give up, to release. And this just makes sense, right? People who have had a massive debt canceled, those who were shown mercy also need to be the kind of people who will pass it on to others. But the next line, Jesus' closing statement here, this was the zinger, if I could say it like that. This was the part of the story nobody expected to hear. If Peter was still wondering what this had to do with the original question, it was about to become painfully clear as we read the final words of Jesus here, as he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And so, in case we were still wondering in this purposely very purposely told story, this answer to Peter's questions about how often we have to forgive someone else when they sin against us, this is what this story means. You see, the king represents God. The servant who had his debts forgiven represents everyone who has had his or her sin debt canceled by God. And wouldn't you know it, the second servant is anyone that we're holding something against because of something that they've done to us or that they owe us. And Jesus' words couldn't be any more clear. He says, cancel their debt. Forgive them. You see, Jesus seems to take it personally how you and I treat each other. Jesus seems to take it personally how you and I treat one another. The way we treat each other seems to have an effect in our relationship with him. You see, faith isn't just upward towards God, but it's very much towards other people. And so we think to ourselves, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. What did you just say there? I'm the one who's been hurt. I'm the victim here. And this is a natural response. This is naturally how we react sometimes. And in so many cases, unfortunately, it's true. It's actually true. But Jesus tells us it's still on us to forgive. You see, if we hold out waiting to pay 
to be paid back for the wrongs done to us, we will be the ones who pay. If, on the other hand, we cancel the debts owed to us, we will be set free. From our point of view, we often have the right to hold out until we're paid back for what was done to us. And yet, from God's perspective, it's possibly the most self-destructive thing that we can do. Because there may not be a literal prison for those who harbor resentment in their hearts. But we certainly put ourselves in a prison of sorts when we cling to the debts that are owed to us by other people. Maybe that's why Jesus gave such a stern warning. If we demand repayment, we will be the ones who pay. You see, Peter probably learned the deeper meaning of this parable later on, a few chapters later, when he found himself staring at Jesus, hanging on a Roman cross. This was the extent to which forgiveness would go. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when you think about it, in the shadow of our hurts, forgiveness actually feels like, it actually feels like a decision sometimes to reward an enemy, doesn't it? Yet in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. And when I accept forgiveness from God, I am set free from the penalty of my sin. And when I extend forgiveness to my enemy, there's a sense in which I'm set free from his or her sin as well. You see, Ephesians 4.32 said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, the kind of forgiveness that Paul speaks of here doesn't make any sense at all unless you are a forgiven person. And this is a difficult truth and teaching of Jesus. Are you with me? This is a difficult truth and teaching of Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian, you aren't expected to treat others in the same way that you've been treated by others. You've been called to treat people in the same way that you've been treated by your Father in heaven. And you don't even forgive because the person deserves it. In many cases, they don't deserve it. Can I say that? In many cases, they don't deserve it at all, but you forgive because you have been forgiven. And forgiveness is always framed around God's grace towards you, God's grace towards me. In the scriptures, forgiveness is never presented as a feeling, but it's always described as a decision. Andy Stanley is someone who has been a big influence on my life, in my ministry, in my really just all around. He's just a teacher I love to listen to. I love to read everything he puts out. And uh, he talks about the cycle of forgiveness based upon this, uh, this parable. And I've kind of modified it a little bit. But he gives us some ways in which we can go about forgiving people in case you wanted some practical steps. 
And so the first thing he says to do in the cycle of forgiveness is to, number one, identify who you're angry with. Identify who you're angry with. Get specific. Get personal when it comes to this. Some of you might say, well, I'm angry at the church. And you know what? Well, who specifically? Because I can't believe, I find it hard to believe that five, 600 people would be the ones who offended you, right? And so get specific. Who is it? Identify who you're angry with. Number two, determine what they owe you. Determine what it is that you feel owed. Figure out in your heart why you're so angry with them, why this is causing you such trouble, why this is so difficult to, to, to move on. For some of us, this is actually going to take some heart searching. For some of us, this is going to be so painfully obvious. But determine what they owe you. And number three, and here's the hard part, this is the difficult step. We have to cancel the debt. We have to release them. Not because they deserve it, but because Christ asks you to do it. Just as he has forgiven you. You see, it's not just their freedom that we're dealing with. It's actually yours, and it's hurting you, and maybe only hurting you at this point. Remember that at the end of the day, if we hold out waiting to be repaid for the wrongs done to us, it is we who will be the ones who pay. But if, on the other hand, we cancel the debts owed to us, we will be set free. Because in the end, when we fail to forgive and cancel the debts, we never truly hurt the offending parties as much as we really just end up hurting ourselves. And when we forgive others, it's not simply about the other person or persons, but if it does something in our hearts as well as we release something. And so some will ask this question. But what about when you do forgive someone? Is it necessary that I go and tell them? How many of you have ever thought this before? Anyone? This is something that's went around in my head. Andy Stanley, I think, gives us great advice here. He says, often I'm asked if it's necessary to tell the person you've forgiven that you have, in fact, forgiven them. In my opinion, no. In fact, it could do more harm than good. In many cases, the offending parties don't feel as if they've done anything wrong to begin with. Sharing your decision to forgive could actually be taken as an accusation. The one time it is always appropriate is when someone asks you for forgiveness or returns to apologize for an incident from the past. Other than that, this transaction is between you and God. And I like that because I think in some cases, the other person might not even acknowledge that there's even a rift or that there's even a need for forgiveness, you see? But what's interesting about forgiveness is that forgiveness is actually a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. And there is a difference. And I think sometimes we confuse those words and we act like they're the exact same thing. But you need two people to reconcile, right? But forgiveness is actually, in many ways, a one-way street in that we can still release others in our hearts, even if they aren't willing to reconcile. 
and even if reconciliation shouldn't happen or, or, or isn't possible. And I think Andy touches on something important. Sometimes people won't even acknowledge that they did anything wrong, and this can cause offense all over, this can cause fights all over. But on the other hand, if both parties are willing to rec reconcile, then of course, by all means, by all means. Number four in the cycle of forgiveness, this one's important. Continue to walk with Jesus' help. Continue to walk with his help. We're going to need his help in order to do this anyways. You see, the question that begs to be asked in all this is the question, is it wrong to want to be paid back for what was taken? And the answer is no. There's nothing wrong with wanting repayment. The problem is, in most cases, it's impossible to be reimbursed for what was taken. Think about the parable Jesus told. The king who forgave that servant's debt, he was going to be out a lot of cash and a lot of resources, no matter how he handled that situation, because that was never going to be paid back. Restitution was completely out of the question here. Some debts cannot be repaid, and so it is with us. The debts that cannot be repaid, the best thing for us to do is to cancel them. To cling to our hurt while wanting to be repaid is to allow the seeds of bitterness to take, to take root and to grow. And when that happens, we allow the person who hurt us once to hurt us over and over and over and over and over again. Blaming won't cure the heart of anger. Holding out for an apology won't either. The cure, Jesus says, is forgiveness. In the same way he's forgiven us. And so I asked the question this evening, is there anyone here today who you know that perhaps you've been holding on to some stuff that God wants you to have no part of? You know some forgiveness needs to happen. You need to free other people, but maybe more than anything, you need to free yourself. Kevin Makins on Twitter this past week wrote this, and I saw it yesterday, and I felt like I should include it. He said, for me, the most radical part of Jesus' teaching is forgiving others before they are sorry. Before they apologize, not to get anything from anyone else, but to set ourselves free. To change the flow of human history because we have been forgiven. You see, eventually what's stored up in our hearts will be revealed in our actions and in our attitudes and so, a couple of quick thoughts about forgiveness as we wrap up. Forgiveness is a decision that we make. It's a decision that we're going to have to make. We're going to have to think it through. Forgiveness is something that God really wants us to experience, every one of us. Now, hear this. Forgiveness is not condoning a wrong, okay? Forgiveness is not condoning a wrong. And forgiveness is not always about forgetting, Sometimes we do need to set boundaries in our lives to prevent being hurt again. Forgiveness doesn't mean that consequences won't be necessary. Forgiveness is not diminishing stuff. It's not suppressing. It's not excusing. It's not justifying things. It's not even to regain trust necessarily because some, some situations just need to be separated. Forgiveness really simple, simply is this. It is to release to release a debt that is owed. And scripture suggests that forgiveness is possible when we experience the amazing forgiveness 
and the amazing grace of God in our lives. And so is there something that you've been holding on to that you need to release? Do you perhaps need to experience God's forgiveness in your life afresh today? You see, on the cross, Jesus cried out these words. He said, it is finished, which can also be translated, it is paid. And some of you are like me. Some of you have a story like me. You just can't forgive yourself. You're so tough on yourself, right? You just don't, you just don't ever give yourself a break. But the truth of Scripture, my friends, is that Jesus has paid for you already. He has paid to release you, and you can accept his grace, you can accept his forgiveness, you can accept his love afresh today, not because of anything you did, but simply because of what he's done and who he is. Amen? Let me illustrate this, how deep sometimes forgiveness goes. Scott Thomas, um, I read an interview with him in the Hockey News a few months back, and he was on John Gormley this past winter. And Scott Thomas's son, Evan, they're, they're holding a picture of him there, was involved in that horrible and horrific uh, bus crash that happened with the Humboldt Broncos in between Nipawin and Tisdale. And Scott Thomas ne requested during the trial to have 15 minutes alone with the driver of the truck who hit the bus because he wanted to talk with him. And I remember reading this story, and I remember hearing him on Gormley and just thinking to myself, how can someone who's endured this and experienced this, especially with a kid, how can they forgive? It just blows my mind. Anyone? It just blows my mind. And when he was interviewed in the hockey news, they asked him the same thing. They, they were perplexed. They, were, they, were, they, they, they wanted to know, how can you take this step in your life? And here's what he said. He said, I don't have the energy for hatred. Our family just doesn't. For us to move forward, the easiest path to that is forgiveness and compassion. And he had an emotional moment with that driver. I remember even just driving, listening to Gormley and tearing up, hearing this conversation and hearing this guy's heart. Mind blown. How, like, where, where does the power to do this come from? And when I hear this, I see that forgiveness isn't just about freeing an offender. Let me repeat that. I see that forgiveness isn't just about freeing an offender, but forgiveness in many ways frees the one who forgives. It brings freedom to the one who forgives. And church family, this is not always easy. And I don't pretend to know or in any way want to minimize anyone's pain. I don't want to minimize anyone's hurts. I don't want to minimize at all what you've gone through. And I'm sorry for the ways that so many have been hurt and wronged. I'm, I'm sorry if Christians have failed you. If, if that's where you're coming from, I apologize for that. And how perhaps those closest to you have betrayed you. But I hope that you can experience in a deeper way what Christ has done for us. Because that and that alone, I believe, will give us the ability to release it. That and that alone will bring true freedom into our hearts.
into our lives and into our situations. And so what I'm inviting us to tonight is a couple things. Please stand with me. For some of us, it's plain as day. You know you need to forgive. You know you need to spend some time with God and, and, and let something go. Release a debt. Free someone. And in the process, free yourself. For others of us, you know, it's something we're going to have to pray through. It's a process. It's something that we're going to have to work through. But what I'm inviting you to tonight is not just to forgive, even though some of us, that's the next step, but rather to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for you afresh. To re-experience it tonight. To remember it. To trust it. To let it go so deep into your heart that it shapes you and it molds you into the kind of person who can trust Jesus in everything. And allow you to release whatever it is that God wants you to release. All talk about forgiveness, friends, is framed around his grace and his forgiveness that he's shown us. Amen? And you can trust the servant king, Jesus. He understands. He knows what you're going through. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your word tonight, Lord God, that it has power to just change us and draw us closer to you. And however we need to respond tonight, Lord, I pray that each one in this room, each one online, wherever we're at, Lord God, that we would just experience your love, your grace, and your forgiveness afresh even right now. Lord, that you would remind us of the incredible debt that we could never pay back. And Lord, may we worship you and praise you in that. And may you, Lord God, with your help, may you empower us to also forgive one another. And so, Lord, help us. We can't do it on our own. We need your help. We need your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship tonight, allow God to speak to your heart. God bless. We are so thankful that you've listened in to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. Go to the podcast description and follow the link to get in touch with us. Everything we do would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to give, check out that same link in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.